How many of you enjoy uh, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes? Many of you? Yes, I knew this is, yeah, we love Calvin and Hobbes. Probably one of my all-time favorite Calvin and Hobbes strips is the one where uh, Calvin is selling a swift kick in the butt. <laughs> Remember this? I have it up here on the screen. He's selling a swift kick in the butt, and Hobbes comes up to him and says, How's business? <laughs> He's like, Terrible, and that's hard to believe. Calvin's like, I, I just, I can't understand it. And then do you remember what he says? He then says this. Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. <laughs> Everybody I know needs what I'm selling. Now, uh, aside, aside from the humor, you know what makes this strip so great? What makes it so great is that it illustrates this really important truth, and that is people only give their time attention, and money to the things they believe they need. I mean, think for a moment about your own life. Why do you quickly discard ads that come in the mail? Why do you not answer the phone when a telemarketer calls, right? We, all of us, you only give your time, attention, interest, and money to those things you believe you think you need, right? And this is especially true when it comes to Jesus. My experience talking with many in this community is that most people are aware of Jesus, but they have no interest in knowing more about him. And you know why that is? It's because they don't believe that they need him. They, truthfully, they, they see Jesus as irrelevant to their lives. And I wonder, is that true of you this morning? Do you find Jesus irrelevant to your life? But in fact, perhaps you're here this morning. Not because you believe you need Jesus, but maybe someone just invited you to church. Or, or maybe you, you're here this morning and you are a Christian. But you find that your relationship with Jesus is growing increasingly cold. In fact, in your honest moments, you'd think Jesus is less and less relevant to your life. In fact, can I, can, I, can I just ask you directly, and, and you don't have to say it out loud, but do you believe you need Jesus? Do you believe you need Jesus? And if so, why? I bring this to your attention because this is actually the very question 
the author of Hebrews is going to answer in our text this morning. And to be sure, please hear me, unlike Calvin, the author isn't trying to sell us something. No, rather in Hebrews chapter 5, rather Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the author clearly articulates to us, please hear me, why Jesus is necessary why he is relevant, why you do need him, why I need him. In this text, friend, we learn why Jesus is worthy of our time and attention and devotion. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 2. That's page 1001 in that paperback Bible on the seat in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. Uh, Not too long ago, we started a new series through the book of Hebrews. We're entitling Christ Our Anchor. And friend, what you need to know at the outset is that Scripture teaches that the God of the Bible is a speaking God. The God of Scripture speaks. And indeed, the book of Hebrews begins by telling us that God has something to say. And remember what that was. The book of Hebrews opens with the preacher, the author of Hebrews, making this statement, and that is, God has spoken definitively in His Son. The God of Scripture is a speaking God. He's spoken many times and many ways in the past, but now He's spoken definitively in His Son. And what His God said about His Son was the first four verses of Hebrews makes clear. We learned that Jesus is God's final prophet. He's our perfect priest and he's the supreme king. God speaks. He's spoken definitively in his son and what we learn about his son and he's the final prophet, the perfect priest and our supreme king. And then you recall for the rest of Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews, he he strings together seven Old Testament citations to prove why Jesus is superior, why he is greater, why he is better than angels. In those citations, we learn that Jesus is the eternal divine son. He's the true Davidic king. He's the agent of creation and he's the Lord over all. Angels, on the other hand, the author of Hebrews lets us know, are simply messengers. So then when we get to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the preacher, he gives his very first exhortation of the entire letter. And you remember what that was? It's a warning. He starts by saying, God has spoken definitively in his son. And then what's the very first command he gives? He gives this. Heed what you have heard. I've just told you about Jesus. That God has spoken definitively in his son. And the very first word that God, or that the, the author of Hebrews says is, Heed what you have heard. Heed what you have heard. That is, we are to pay careful attention to God's Son. And why are we to heed this message about Christ and the salvation He gives? Well, the author develops three important reasons, and this is what we looked at last time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
We are to heed what we have heard about Christ because, number one, it prevents drifting, it warns of judgment, and it proceeds from the Lord. Now, you might be wondering, why, why in the world is the author of Hebrews taking so much time to talk about angels? What you have to understand is that in the Old Testament, angels served as intermediaries in giving the law. But now, in Christ Jesus, something greater has come. In Jesus, God has not spoken to us through angels, but by mediated through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, up until this point, the author has exhorted us to hear what God has said. The emphasis in these first two chapters has been on listening. Yet now in our text this morning, you know what the author does? He switches senses. What I mean is, in our text this morning, the author exhorts us not to hear but to see several important realities about Jesus and ourselves. And as we look at these things, as we consider what the author wants us to see, in a bright and vibrant way, we're going to learn why Jesus is necessary, why he is relevant for you and me. So what is it that the author wants us to see? Well, follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. The author writes this. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So there's a coming world, and the author's making it clear. God says what? Angels aren't the ones who are going to be ruling. They're not the ones who are going to be in charge. He says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Verse 6, It has been testified somewhere, and here the author quotes Psalm 8. He says, and we actually read it this morning in our service, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And now notice what we read about humanity. Notice what we see and learn about humanity. We read this, You made him, referring to mankind, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So notice what we, what we learn here. God's design for humanity is that they would be the ones who rule, not only in this world, but the world to come. And, and the author makes, goes on to clarify. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 8. Now, in putting everything into, in subjection to him, referring to mankind, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, here where we get the verb to see. But notice what he says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, referring to mankind. So this was God's plan, but we certainly don't see it now. That's, things are not how they ought to be. But notice what he says, verse 9, verse nine what do we see? But we see him, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who's, who's this he? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. On November 11th, 2011, the Miami Dolphins were beating the Baltimore Ravens 6-3 to in the fourth quarter. Miami had the ball and was marching down the field. They actually had the ball on the Ravens' seven-yard line. And with less than 11 minutes to go, Miami, their quarterback, dropped back to pass only to be chased by several linesmen. While the quarterback was scrambling outside of the pocket, he then like tossed, kind of like lobbed the ball towards the line of scrimmage where 330-pound Miami lineman Robert Hunt made a remarkable one-handed catch and then ran another seven yards diving over the goal line to score a touchdown. It was an incredible catch, especially by such a large man, 6'6", 330 pounds. It was an incredible catch, and then a great dive to score a touchdown in the end zone. But you know what? The play got called back. And you know why? It wasn't because of holding. It's because Robert Hunt was an ineligible receiver. You see, in football, only a few players can be eligible to receive a pass. And Hunt, being an offensive lineman, was not. Do you know what that meant? It meant, please hear me, he was not qualified to catch the ball. So no touchdown. Notice in this text, the author continues to compare and contrast Jesus to what? Angels. And what the preacher wants us to see is that Jesus does something no angel can do. And you know what it is that Jesus can do which no angel can do? It's simply this. Only Jesus can restore humanity's created purpose. This is the main point of the passage I just read. Only Jesus, He alone, can restore humanity's created purpose. You see, as verses 6 through 8 make clear, humanity was made to rule over creation. Indeed, God's purpose is that humanity would also rule over the world to come. Yet due to sin, the world is not in subjection to mankind, is it? No, things are not as they ought to be. So the question becomes, who can make things right? Who can restore sinful man to fulfill his created purpose? Not angels. No, only God's perfect Son 
the Lord Jesus Christ can accomplish that. And friend, what you have to understand is it's not as though angels are just ineligible to restore humanity. Like Robert Hunt was ineligible to receive a pass. No, angels, please hear me, they're incapable. You see, as good and glorious and great as angels are, and angels are good and great and glorious, they cannot do what is required to restore humanity to our created purpose. No, only one person can do that, and that's Jesus. And friend, this is why you need Him. You need Him so that you can fulfill the role God has intended for you as being part of mankind. Indeed, to to stress the importance of why we need Jesus, the author invites us to see three important truths. And I'm going to put them in the form of a question. And the first is this. The author wants us to see, or rather he asks, do you see, first friend, your divine design? Look at verses 6 through 8 again. Actually, I'll go up to, back, up to verse 5. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. The first thing the author says is, do you see your divine design? Uh, The late pastor, Tim Keller, tells the story of a friend of his who was a resident at a teaching hospital in New York City. And one day, the friend with some other medical students, they were making their rounds in the psychiatric ward when they came upon a patient that was struggling with deep, deep depression. The patient was a woman who viewed herself as being worthless and of no good. And the teaching doctor who was leading this group of residents began a discussion about this case and asked the residents as to how they would treat this patient. Well, Keller's friend spoke up and said, well, uh, one thing is that you could do, and it really doesn't require a lot of medicine or anything, is you could just reassure her that she is valuable, that she's a worthwhile human being, that she has dignity and worth just as a human being. To which the doctor replied, how do you know that? How, how do you know, he said, how do you know She has value and worth as a human being. You know how all the residents responded? They all started to laugh a little bit, thinking he was joking. But he wasn't. The doctor then said, look, we're scientists here. Science says humans are more complex. But there is no scientific basis for saying that you have value You have significance or worth simply because you're a human. The students stood in silence, processing what the doctor had just said. 
Yet as shocking as it initially sounded, what the doctor was saying is completely consistent with secular humanism. Indeed, as Oliver Wendell Holmes, the famous Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, once said, oh, I don't think I have it in there. So you're just going to have to listen to it. <laughs> he says, quote, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. No difference. Yet consider what we read in Scripture. Contrary to what I would say is the prevailing notion of our day, according to Scripture, humans are unique and precious in God's sight. Indeed, as this text makes clear, God has crowned humans with glory and honor and intended that everything else in creation be in subjection under humanity's feet. In this text, the preacher quotes Psalm 8. Now, when the author says there, I love what he says there in verse 6, when he says it's been testified somewhere, it's not like he lost sword drills in Sunday school. Okay, it's not like he doesn't know the reference, okay? No, the point is not that the author is uncertain of its location. Rather, what he's saying is, it's enough for him that God has said it in Holy Scripture. And as several commentators have pointed out, Psalm 8, it's a creation psalm. It's a creation psalm that considers the role of human beings in creation echoing what we see taught in Genesis 1 and 2. And as David states there in Psalm 8, when human beings consider the marvels of creation and the majesty of God, when we really ponder and think about that, it should make us feel insignificant. And rightly so. I mean, take a moment and look up at the starry sky. Look at the vastness and majesty of what God has created. When we look and consider this, we should feel insignificant. And yet, according to Scripture, how has God designed us? What's His intent for us? According to Scripture, mankind was made to be the rulers of the world. For it's only humans who have been made in the image of God, not baboons or a grain of sand. Amen? And there's a really important application here. Friend, please hear me. It is only in the pages of Scripture where the value and worth of humanity is esteemed. Everywhere else you're going to hear what the doctor was saying. And Oliver Wendell Holmes is saying. Where there's no difference. But God's Word says there is. Indeed, this is why Christians are pro-life from the cradle to the grave. Humans are different than a grain of sand. And not just different, but according to God, humans are to have dominion over the sand and baboons. Not the other way around. God's design is that humans would rule over creation. And indeed, according to verse 5, they would rule with Jesus over the world to come. That is the future age when all of God's promises will be fulfilled. 
So the first thing that the author of Hebrews wants you to see is he's asking, do you see this? I'm quoting Psalm 8 on purpose. Do you see your divine design? Do you see the purpose for which God has for humanity? This is the first thing you need to see if you're going to understand why you need Jesus. But there's something else the author invites us to see, and that second friend, do you see your present problem? Because look at what he says there in verse 8. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The design was this, but we don't presently see it, do we? Okay, and if you want to raise your hand, you can. Maybe you, you, you feel relief doing this. But let me ask you, how many of you have had a pet destroy something in your home or go to the bathroom on your floor on a nice piece of furniture? Okay, yeah, and everyone else thinks I'm crazy because I don't have a pet, okay? Listen, listen, you know what that chewed up piece of furniture and that bad smelling carpet are, friend, you pet owners? They're exhibit A that Hebrews 2.8 is true. That is, the unruly nature of your pet testifies that not everything is in subjection to mankind. The hymn there in verse 8 is a reference to humanity. Indeed, could there be a bigger understatement than verse 8? If we begin making a list of those things in this world that are not under man's control, it would quickly become quite a large list. Amen? Just think about it with me for a moment. From the weather, to food supplies, to animals... Man does not rule them. Indeed, man is not even able to rule himself. And we don't have to guess as to why this is. Genesis 3 tells us how things went wrong. And the reason is sin. Friend, please hear me. As a representative and head, Adam failed. And as a result, all of humanity has been cursed. In Adam, we've been brought down. And every human since then, every human is now a sinner by nature and by choice. And here's the question that I want you to consider. Do you see this? Do you see the present problem? And have you identified that the source of the problem is sin? And you know why this question is so important? It's so important because how we define the problem always determines the nature of its solution. What if the real problem in this world is not a lack of knowledge? What if the real problem in this world isn't a lack of enlightenment? Or what if the real problem in this world isn't poverty? What if the real problem runs much deeper? What if the problem of this world is that man is in bondage to sin and under the curse of death? 
Indeed, what if man's problem is that since Adam's fall, we all are sinners by nature, condemned by God and unable to save ourselves? You see, the author of Hebrews reads Psalm 8 in light of the entire biblical story. He understands that something is radically wrong with the world, and as the rest of Hebrews teaches, we see that death and sin have frustrated God's designed human potential, and the divine plan for the world has not been realized. Do you know what it means? Please hear me. It means we need someone to reverse the curse. We need someone to get us out of this mess. And as we read the Bible, we quickly learn from Adam, it's not Noah, it's not Abraham, it's not David. Indeed, we need someone greater than an angel to restore our created purpose. And you know who we need? Who do we need, friend? Jesus. And this is who the preacher really wants us to see. This is the third question he asks. Friend, do you see your suffering Savior? Look again at verses 8 through 10. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. This is referring to humanity. At present, we do not see everything in subjection, in subjection to Him, mankind. But we see... Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is referring to His incarnation. Then crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Why did Jesus need to taste death? Because death is what is owed to sinful humanity. It's the punishment we deserve. So on the cross, Jesus Christ took the punishment we deserve so that through faith with Him, faith in Him, we might be forgiven of our sins, made right with God, and have the hope of eternal life. The good news of this passage is that God sent His own Son the last Adam to reverse the curse. Jesus took on human flesh to undo the work of the first man. The role intended for human beings in the garden has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He succeeded as a human being where everyone else has failed. And because of his suffering and death, he was crowned with honor and glory. The role intended for Adam to rule over the world was obtained by Jesus through his suffering on the cross. And I want you to see how Jesus saved us and will restore us to our created purpose. Jesus' life, we could be summarized, we see it here in short, under three distinct phrases. Humiliation, exaltation, and triumph. The first is Jesus' humiliation, which appears here with the words, who is made lower than the angels. See it there? We should remember that Jesus was the second person of the Godhead before his birth at Bethlehem. This is what we've been talking about in Discipleship Hour. He's eternally the Son 
God of the Son. His existence before the incarnation was one of perfect glory and he took up mortal flesh for the sake of his redeeming work, humbling himself beneath the angels as a man. And the pinnacle of his humiliation came at the cross where our Lord died a death that was shameful before men and cursed before God, bearing the guilt of our sins. Indeed, notice what we see there in verse 9, how it speaks of Jesus tasting death for everyone. And in response to Christ's obedience unto death, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand. This is the second face of, of Christ's history. As verse 9 says, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. And the third stage is one that is yet to come triumph. Right? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now is not that time. We await that day. We await the world to come. And so what I, as we bring this in for landing, the, the question, the most important question that I want to press upon you is, friend, do you see your suffering Savior? Do you see the present problem? Your, your problem isn't a lack of knowledge. Your problem is sin. And you need one to save you from your sin to make you right with your Creator, and that's Jesus. Do you see that Jesus had to die so you could be forgiven and restored back to God? And if you haven't, friend, I would plead with you, let today be the day of salvation for you. Salvation doesn't come to the morally righteous. Salvation comes to those who confess their need, who own their sin, and then trust the perfect performance of Jesus, that that was sufficient to save them. And for those of you who are Christians, who perhaps maybe have grown a little cold in your relationship to the Lord, marvel and rejoice what God has done for you in Christ. Indeed, like the famous Christian song, Christmas song, the author of Hebrews asks, do you see what I see? And I pray that we do. Let's pray.